We're looking through the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. We've come now to the book of Numbers. And it may interest you to know that the book of Numbers gets its name from the Greek arithmoi, which in the Septuagint is the word for arithmetic. Numbers. And it refers, the actual idea of numbers, to two events that are found in the book. In chapter 1 and in chapter 26. We read of them briefly in our scripture reading. You start out in Numbers chapter 1 at the first verse. And it says, The Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And here's what he said in verse 2 and onwards. Take ye the sum, which means the number, the aggregate number, of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families. Verse 3 says, Thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So there you get the idea of numbers. And when we go to chapter 26... We have the same idea that is recorded there for us. Numbers chapter 26. He says in verse 2, Take the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel from 20 years old and upward. Verse 4 says, Take the sum of the people from 20 years old and upward. So this is where we get the idea of numbers. The numbering of the people twice in a great census. The first time in the second year after leaving Egypt. And then in the 40th year before they would enter into those that were left, the promised land. Now the Hebrew title of this book, In the Wilderness, describes the contents of the book. Because that's chiefly what we're looking at here. The people of God during the time of their wilderness wanderings. The first word of the book, and, is obviously a conjunction. That's a word that you will use today when you're writing. You'll see it as you're reading. And it joins what came before with what comes after. You know, you'll say something, 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 and. So now you're adding something to that. So Numbers begins, and the Lord spake unto Moses. That takes us back to what came before. This connects Numbers with the preceding books as, in effect, the continuation of them. And you would expect that. But when we think about Numbers, it actually doesn't take up the story where Leviticus left off. It takes up the story where Exodus left off. Because, as we noted The book of Leviticus is chiefly made up of legislation, laws. There's a little bit of history in there, but not too much. Most of the history is a continuation from Exodus into Numbers. Now, in the book of Numbers, between that census or that numbering that took place in the first chapter and the census in chapter 26, we find a history, a divine history, of the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness for a period of about 38 years and 10 months. Almost 40 years. And that commenced with the first movement of the camp 
after that great tabernacle or tent was erected. When Israel's position as God's people had been regulated by the laws that are found in Exodus and Leviticus, they were then to advance into Canaan, or what we call the Promised Land, which was literally only 15 days' march from the Mount Sinai. So literally it should have only taken them two weeks to get there. But of course the circumstances that are recorded in the book of Numbers show the hindering of this consummation of the divine purpose and the result was not a 15 day journey into the promised land but a delay in that journey of nearly 40 years. Let me just stop there to say it's remarkable what sin can do in the lives even of believers in hindering them from doing the will of God. Now this book gives the account of the wilderness experiences of God's people and especially it records those things that should not have happened. Things that they shouldn't have done. Experiences that they should not have had if they had obeyed God. And if they had believed God. Those are two things that come through in the book of Numbers very, very clearly. Disobedience and distrust. Disobeying God never works out well for those concerned. And distrusting God, failure to believe God, does not result in anything good either. Now we read here in this book, the story of the murmurings and the rebellions of the Israelites against their leadership. They couldn't see God. They could certainly complain about the Lord. And in a portion that we read during the Bible reading, it actually tells us in chapter 21 and verse 5, And the people spake against God and against Moses. They could speak against Moses because he was the visible target. They couldn't see the Lord, but they could see Moses. And so he came in for a lot of their wrath and anger as well. But this murmuring and this rebellion resulted in sad and far-reaching consequences for the Israelites. And that brings us to think about the character of the book of Numbers. The character of the book. Except for the first 15 months at Sinai, this book tells us everything that is known for a period of about 40 years. And I could connect the dots, as it were, for you by turning to some scriptures in uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. It gives you the circumstances there. The Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. That's where they were at that particular time. But then you come right away over to chapter 33 of the book. Numbers chapter 33. And you look at verse number 38. And there it says, And Aaron the priest went up into Mount Hor, at the commandment of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the first day of the fifth month. 
And then chapter 36, verse 13, comes into this. The very last verse of the book. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses unto the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. So this is mentioning now the promised land, entrance into Canaan. The silence, if you like, of the 38 years is in marked contrast with the fullness of the record at Sinai. The tabernacle, that is that great tent that was reared up, it was the rallying point for God's people. And the names that are listed in chapter 33 are probably those of its stations during the years of wandering. See, the tabernacle went with them everywhere that they went. There's a blending of history and legislation here that's really true to life. And as in Exodus and Leviticus, the laws that God gave actually grew out of the experiences of the people. The Lord had to implement laws for the regulation of the lives of the nation. I've said Leviticus doesn't really advance the history, apart from two brief historical incidents. But this links the book of Numbers to the narrative of Exodus. Carrying on from Exodus, it relates the wandering of the Israelites in the desert after their failure to enter the promised land through unbelief. Now if you turn in your Bible to the book of Hebrews, I have mentioned before that Leviticus and Hebrews belong together, but that is some, somewhat true of Numbers as well. And I'll show you why this is relevant in the book of Hebrews, <coughs> New Testament, chapter 3, we see that the Bible refers to this Old Testament history. He is applying this Old Testament principle, if you like, to people who lived in that day and even to us. Hebrews 3, verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear His voice, Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. The Lord means that period of wandering. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath... They shall not enter into my rest. And the Lord applying that says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This goes on into chapter 4. Actually, at the end of chapter 3, you'll see again, verse 17, But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And that continues on into chapter 4. Unbelief. A failure to believe God. Was why they wandered as they did in the desert. You can say as well here in this particular connection that the contents of numbers are 
important. And just very briefly, let me say that there are two general divisions in the book of Numbers, and they're marked by those two great events, the taking of the sum of the people in chapter 1 and in chapter 26. These are two organizations, or if you like, taking of census of the people. We know that even from time to time in our own land, they'll take a census. And uh, I haven't done this for a long time. I think the last time this happened with me was in the UK. They send you out these forms. You have to fill in all details about yourself. And uh, I guess the government are hoping that people will be honest and put the proper details in there. And uh, they try to keep a record of what the population is, where people live, and all these various circumstances connected with them. It's called the taking of a census. This happened twice in Numbers. The first muster, you'll see, was of that generation that came out of Egypt. And that takes in chapters 1 through 25. And let me just sum that up by saying that it ended in disaster. Total disaster. But the second division of the book consists of the new generation from chapter 26 to chapter 36. But closer study reveals details that indicate the substance of all of this more clearly. And there is an outline that I could give you that was given by a great preacher called W.H. Griffith Thomas in which he summarized the whole book as organization, disorganization, and reorganization. Very easy to remember. Organization, disorganization, and reorganization. Where the organization was concerned, there was a preparation for the advance of the people at Sinai. That takes in the detail of chapters 1 through 10. Subpoints to that would be the arrangement of the camp from chapters 1 to 4, the purity of the camp, chapters 5 and 6, the worship of the camp, chapter 7 verse 1 to chapter 9 verse 14, and the progress of the camp from chapter 9 verse 15 to chapter 10 verse 36. The arrangement of the camp, the purity of the camp, the worship of the camp, the progress of the camp. This is all the organization by God, preparing them for advance at Mount Sinai. They should have entered in within two weeks. But there was disorganization. And this is the check to their advance, the hindrance to their advance. This takes in Sinai to Kadesh, from chapters 11 to chapter 25. I could subdivide that into discontent and distrust in chapters 11 and 12. Disobedience and disaster, chapters 13 and 14. And then there was discipline and death, chapters 15 to 25. Basically, bad things happened during that time. Because of their sin. Because of their failure to trust God. Repeatedly even involving Moses himself. There's an incident we could refer to where Moses was told by God, speak to the rock. But Moses was angry, and when you do stuff in a fit of anger, it's usually not good. 
and instead of speaking to the rock, he smote the rock with his rod. And of course the waters that they needed came out for the people and for their animals. So the argument could be made, and is made by people sometimes, well, even, you, even if you don't do exactly what God said, as long as you're you know, kind of doing what he said, and it all works out in the end, you get the results, it'll be fine. And that's how some people argue with regard to evangelism, for example. Using things that are not legitimate, that are not scriptural, to try to get results. As long as you get the results, hey, it's all good, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because while Moses got the result that he wanted, waters for the people and for the flocks, God said, because you disobeyed my voice, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. You will not be going up and leading the people into Canaan. It's never good to disobey God. There was reorganization then. There was a renewal of their advance. And this is Kadesh again, from chapters 26 through to 36. As we've noted, there was a new census. There was a new muster of the people in chapter 26. There were some new experiences that they had in chapters 27, 31 and 32. And then there were some new laws that God gave from chapters 28 to 30 and 33 to 36. And one thing that comes through here in Numbers is the mercy of God even to a disobedient people. Because, friends, sometimes we mess up. And sometimes we don't do what the Lord wants us to do. And while there may be consequences such as there were for Moses, yet at the same time, God is merciful. God is gracious. And God is forbearing with his people. Let's think about a third thing here. The comparisons in numbers. And I do love this. I'm really referring to typology. Now types in the Bible are there so that we can see Christ in the Old Testament. Whenever you read Luke's Gospel chapter 24, there's a story of Jesus after the resurrection walking along the road to Emmaus, not Emmaus, Pennsylvania, Emmaus in the Middle East. And they're having a conversation, these two people, probably a man and a woman based on their names. Jesus draws near and walks with them, but they don't know who he is. Their eyes are holding, the Bible says, so that they didn't know who he was. And he, he looked at them and he said, you, you look very sad. Your countenances are sad. What's, what's going on? What's wrong? And then they told the story how they hoped that Jesus of Nazareth would be the one that would deliver them. But it's now been three days and they were in a terrible state. Not realizing, yes, it had been three days, but he's risen. There he is beside them, walking with them. But they didn't know it. Sometimes we're just like that. The Lord is with us and we can't see him. We don't know it. We don't realize that he's right at our elbow. And he's helping us. And we think he's far away. He wants nothing to do with us. He's forgotten about us. But he's right there. And while he was right there, he gave them a Bible study on their walk. The way the Bible puts it is, beginning at Moses and in all the prophets, 
He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus went to the Old Testament, to Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And right there he drew out of those portions all the things that refer to him. What are those things? They're types. They're types. And the typology, the the comparisons in Numbers are wonderful. We think about Leviticus, it's a record of worship and obedience. Numbers is a record of wandering through disobedience. But listen, even during that time, God brought before them numerous pictures or portrayals or types of Christ. He set these things right before them. How do we know that? Well, we read the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Notice carefully what he says here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he gives this, basically, which is a rehearsal of the history of what happened in the book of Numbers. We'll not read all of these verses, but we see that it says here, summing up everything that happened to them, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples. Now that word that's used in the authorized version, in the margin, if you have a marginal rendering, you'll see that it has the word there, or types. All these things happened unto them for types. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Types. And just as is the case with Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, this fourth book of Moses, Numbers, is full of Christ, if you have eyes to see him. And let me just mention very briefly, because we haven't got time to develop these, several types of Christ in the book of Numbers that would call for our special attention. Chapter 6. Chapter 6 contains the law of the Nazarite. If you read the history of Israel, you will discover that Samson was a Nazarite. That's why he had the locks of hair that he had. And there were certain rules that were connected with the Nazarite. The Nazarite vow that was taken, it really applies very much to the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't time to flesh that out today, but believe me, Christ is there. There's another wonderful type of Christ in chapter 19 of Numbers. And it is the record of what was called the red heifer. You know what a heifer is, don't you? A cow. She was a red cow. And the Lord said to Moses in chapter 19 verse 2, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer, Without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. So it's never been worked in the fields, and it hasn't got any disease, and it hasn't got any infirmities outwardly either. No broken legs, it hasn't got any scars and wounds. It's a beautiful animal. And what they would do is take that animal, you read through the portion... She would be killed outside the camp. The blood of that heifer would be sprinkled in front of the tabernacle of the congregation 
seven times, and then they would burn the heifer. Her skin, flesh, her blood with her dung would be burned. And there's a whole set of events here that would take place with regard to that heifer. And you might look at that and say, well, what's that got to do with anything? What were the people meant to see in this? Taking this animal and killing it, shedding its blood, burning its body. What's that all about? Well, I'll just show you in a minute. It says in verse 9 of Numbers 19, And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place. Let me tell you, when you apply this to the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13 does this, it talks about the bodies of those beasts that were sacrificed, that they were burned outside the camp. This is Hebrews 13 verse 11. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without or outside the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people or set them apart with his own blood, suffered without or outside the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. The Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is pictured by the red heifer. But here's an interesting thing. A man who is considered clean was to gather up the ashes of that heifer that that was burned and he was to lay the ashes outside the camp in a clean place. Where was Jesus buried? They took the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and they laid it in a new tomb wherein man was never laid. See, under the Levitical law, any place where a dead body had lain was defiled. If Jesus had been laid in a grave that already had had bodies in it, it would have been a defiled and unclean place. But it was a clean place. It was a sepulchre hewn out in a rock by Joseph for himself. This was to be his grave whenever he died. But he used it for the Lord, for his body, that he might be laid in a clean place, fulfilling the scriptural type. Believe me, these things are there for a purpose. These things are not accidents. This is how God ordained it. So that it would show a picture to the people of the Messiah who was yet to come, who would die for their sins. Again, there's another beautiful type, and it is the type of bread. Now, if we were to read Exodus 16, we'd see all that it says there about the manna from heaven. Remember, the people were hungry and didn't have any food. So the Lord rained down what they called angels' food. It was a light sort of a bread. And Moses, Jesus said in John 6, gave you that bread from heaven. But he said, I am the bread of life. He that believeth on me shall never hunger. The Lord Jesus is typified by the bread. And this is also true in Numbers chapter 11. Because once again the people needed food. And the Lord gave them the manna. And you can read about this. How that the Lord provided 
the bread for them. And it describes it in Numbers 11 from verse 7. And the manna was as coriander seed, the color thereof as the color of bedellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a, port, in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. Bread from heaven. Jesus said, I am that bread that came down from heaven. John chapter 6. Obviously this is a type of Christ. The same is true of the water. We mentioned this incident in chapter 20. It's found in verse 11. Where Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod he smote the rock twice. The water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. This water represents the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the water of life. Salvation is the water of of life. Jesus said in his day, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he said, As the scripture says, out of that person's belly will flow rivers of living water. And he was not speaking of literal water, but the Holy Spirit. Then there's a beautiful type, one of the best types of Christ in Numbers chapter 21. The situation is clear. The people were complaining again, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. Those snakes began to bite the people and began to die wholesale. And the people said, pray for us, Moses. And he did. And the Lord gave him directions. Look at verse 8 of Numbers 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent. In other words, something that represents exactly the problem. The problem was fiery serpents. I want you to make a fiery serpent. A serpent of brass. It would be fiery because when the sun shone upon that shiny surface of brass, it would be bright and shining. Fiery. Looked like it was on fire. He said, set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass. He put it on a pole it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Very simple. God says, put that serpent of brass up in the midst of the camp on a pole. Somebody gets bitten by a snake, immediately let them look to that serpent of brass and they'll be healed. Now what's that got to do with Christ? Well, it has everything to do with Jesus. And we have Jesus' own word for it. In John chapter 3, there was a Jewish man, a man who was a member of the Sanhedrin called Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew all about the Old Testament. Because the Lord Jesus didn't have to explain to him who Moses was. If I were to go to somebody in the street today and say, as Moses lifts up the serpent in the wilderness, I'd say, what? Who? They may never have heard of Moses. They certainly may not have heard of the serpent of brass. But Nicodemus didn't need to say, who are you talking about? He knew the Old Testament back to front and front to back. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious man. He didn't need any instruction in the contents of the Old Testament. <clears throat> he knew it all. But he didn't know the meaning of it. 
Here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. John 3.14 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That serpent of brass that he put on a pole. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's the cross. There's Calvary. There's Jesus on that pole, if you like. And what is he doing there? He's representing the problem. What is the problem that put Jesus on the cross? It's our sin. He was made sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And there he is on the cross. Represented by that fiery snake. There he is on the pole. And here's the interesting part. He said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those that were bit by the snake, when they looked at that serpent, that snake of brass, they were healed. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, by the same token, anybody who feels their sin and they look to me on the cross as the one who will take away that sin, that person believing on me will be saved. They will not perish. They'll be healed from the snake bites of sin, if you like. And went on to say this, the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. In other words, whoever looks to him. There's life for a look at the crucified one. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You mean, preacher, it's that simple? Yet you realize you're a sinner and you lay your sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. You believe that He takes your sins away and He takes your sins away. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Put your trust in Christ and He will save you. Just like that serpent of brass was the means of those people being healed in the Old Testament. Beautiful picture of Christ. There's also a picture of Christ in the star. It's mentioned in chapter 24, verse 17. You go to Revelation 22:16. it describes the Lord Jesus as the bright and morning star. That seems to be a kind of a contradiction, doesn't it? It's the, it's the morning when the sun's coming up, but it's a bright star. And I'm sure you've been able to see, sometimes if you're up early enough, the morning star. Oh, the, the, the light of the sun is coming up, but you can still see the brightness of that star. It pictures Christ. And there's another wonderful type of Christ in numbers in those cities that were set aside for refuge. Tremendous picture of our Lord. Now, as a book which speaks of the daily walk of the Israelites with God, it teaches us of the great need to obey and serve Him. And that's something that we'll get into, the Lord willing, next time. Because you see, this, this mirrors the experience of Christian believers in all ages. When we read in Numbers about the constant sinfulness and the failures and the murmurings and the jealousy and the unbelief of God's people in the wilderness wanderings, you know what it does? It reminds us of ourselves. 
That's what it does. That's what it does for me. It was very easy to sit in an ivory tower and talk about, oh, those people of Israel are terrible, terrible people, weren't they? Look how they're murmuring and complaining all the time. Look how they're always treating Moses badly and speaking against God. And that's exactly what we do, given the circumstances not being to our liking. So the book of Numbers experiences, or, or it does mirror the experiences of believers in all ages, and it certainly has numerous spiritual parallels for the benefit of Christians today. So I hope that as you read the book of Numbers, I hope that you will, uh, that you'll have a new appreciation for that book and understand that there's so much here that really does refer to us. See, I have a, I have a suspicion that a lot of preachers and Christians, they have this notion in their minds. You know, the New Testament is all about Jesus. And the Old Testament, that's all that stuff that happened in Israel and that's really not important anymore. That, that's all just kind of shadowy stuff that doesn't really have any great meaning. And so they never read the Old Testament hardly. And maybe that's how that habit developed of printing separate New Testaments and giving them to people. I don't like that. I'm not just a New Testament believer, I'm a Two Testament believer. Because the Old Testament, as I've often said, almost to ad nauseum, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They belong together. And they speak with one voice about the Lord Jesus Christ. May we continue to see that for His glory. Amen.